So here, here's our, our, our title before us. What will, be, what will the outcome be? And this is part two, continuing on from, from last week. And so just as, as a reminder, um, this title, What Will the Outcome Be?, uh, it, it connects back to the end of Daniel and uh, specifically Scott's final two messages in Daniel where he, he titled his messages, How Do You Know? And, and he was highlighting with that question, Daniel's, Daniel is overwhelmed by this information, th- these end-of-time prophecies that, he has, that, that, that he's being told. He he's, doesn't know what to do with it. And so uh, in Daniel 12, 8, we see uh, the question where we take our title from tonight. Daniel 12, 8. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And so the reason we're in Revelation 19 is to see some of the answers to that question. To Daniel's question back in Daniel. Going all the way forward to Revelation and we see that, that, God, that God reveals some of the answers. So, so using Daniel's question, what will the outcome be? Um, this was last week's outline. We saw that, number one, the, the outcome is that the return of our king. And we talked about how basically this means for God was coming back to make things right. And, and, and he does. God comes back. Jesus comes back in his second coming to make things right. And then we, the second thing we talked about was the vindication of his people and how we are, are, get to ride in on the coattails of his righteousness and be part of his second coming. And we get to reign with him. And then we saw the, the absolute rule of our king. When, when all the world will see him for who he really is, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So now we're going to zoom in on the details of, of this mighty victory that, that, that we are kind of talking about, but not really zooming in on yet. Um, the victory of the rider of the white horse, our returning king, and, and he's coming to the, to the battle of Armageddon. This is what, what, we're, what we're discussing tonight. So if you'll open up with me to Revelation 19, 17 through 21. Let's read the text, and then we'll talk about it. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come and assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Has anybody ever heard anybody say the Bible's boring? <laughs> Not reading enough. This is some intense 
stuff. Very, very powerful and, and graphic. Uh, the, the, the topic of tonight's text, uh, it, it causes us to address an issue that I think a lot of Christians are not comfortable addressing. And I, I thought this would be a good way for us to start this, this message tonight. It's the issue of violence and wrath. You see, violence is but a tool. That's all it is. Neutral on its own, on its own stand. Now, too often, it is a tool used for great wickedness. When we see sinful men uh, accomplishing these atrocities that, that we could all think of, we could all spend all night thinking of these different atrocities brought about through the tool of violence. And I don't mean to downplay that at all. Don't misunderstand. But it is a tool. At, at times, it's a tool used by the righteous. Righteous acts to keep the evil at bay. Um, now, some of those examples are very, that are very clear in Scripture are police, uh, military, uh, those that have jobs doing things that most people do not want to have to do, but we're happy somebody's doing them. You see, in the, in the military, uh, we have this, this term called violence of action. Violence of action is the concept that in combat, to be successful, you have to be more violent and do it quick, more quickly than your enemy to succeed. You have to not only meet their level, but you have to rise above it. Now, that, I get it. This is something that, like I said, we're not comfortable uh, uh, talking about. Um, and and I'll, I'll get to the point here soon. Uh, but an, another form of righteous violence that, that, that we see is the idea of the sheepdog. So, so the, you've probably heard the example. There, there are the sheep. Uh, that, that is most of citizens in our, in our country and, and, and most of our churchgoers. Um, they just want to go about their life and, and live peacefully, do uh, the things that God is calling them to do, um, and do it without problems. Now then there, there are the wolves. The wolves are out there to, to devour the sheep and are seeking every opportunity to do so. And they're using violence in a wicked way. But then there's the sheepdogs, those that are defenders, those that are, are ready to stand in between the wolf and the sheep. I, I believe our pastors are sheepdogs. A lot of people in our church are sheepdogs, thank God. But the thing is, the sheep, they see the sheepdog and they see, they see the fangs. They see the, the snarl and it reminds them of the wolf. And, and so the sheepdog can look scary. And, and that's, that's what I mean by um, righteous acts that use tools of violence for, for righteous purposes is still not easy for us all to comprehend. But it is, it is there. But the only violence or wrath that is perfect is God's. God is the only one that can execute wrath or violence purely. And it's because he, the executor of the violence, is righteous. 
So God's, God's righteous wrath gives us a clearer picture of who he is because it shows us his hatred for sin and it shows us his inability to have any fellowship with any amount of sin. So the reason he has to destroy the wicked, and, and as we're going to see tonight, he does, is because he can have zero fellowship with sin. His violence toward evil, toward evil is, is a result of his holiness. And, and actually, if we have a problem with God's righteous wrath or violence, as I'm calling it, um, and him using that as a righteous tool, we have a problem with one of two things, and probably both. One, we have a problem, uh, we don't have a clear picture of sin. We have, we have failed to see how big of a problem sin is. And number two, we have failed to understand what it means for God to be holy. The two cannot have anything to do with one another. So God has to act in his, in his uh, uh, righteousness and out of justice to defeat sin, to defeat wickedness. And th- this, is, this is made evident throughout Scripture. Um, it, it's, it's, God is constantly depicted as being powerful, sovereign, and yet righteous. Um, one of my favorite verses that, that shows this is, is uh, Exodus 15.3. If you want to turn there with me, I have it on the screen in, in two different translations. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Or as the King James puts it, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. He's from, and again, this goes back from, from the beginning of Old Testament. We're going to see that it's true through the New Testament. This is not just the Old Testament concept that a lot of people feel that, think that way, that God is wrathful in the Old Testament, but then the New Testament, he's graceful, gracious. He is the same from the beginning to the end. And we get a clearer picture of who he is when we understand both of those. Um, and then Isaiah 42, 13 It says, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. See, these aren't Bible verses you see on bumper stickers or on t-shirts very often. But this is who God is. And then one, one more I was going to keep it at two for the Old Testament, but I, I wanted to go with one more. One of my favorite um, examples of this idea is Joshua five thirteen through 14, where Joshua is confronted with the pre-incarnate Christ, and he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and bowed down and said to, said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the host of the Lord. That's who Jesus is. And like I said, this is not just an Old Testament concept. We're going to see that very clearly tonight. But in uh, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, if you want to turn there with me. I'm sorry, I realize I kind of go through these a little quick. I think I need to do better at slowing down. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. 
For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And here's the final the nail in the coffin. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is terrifying if you don't call him Lord. Because he is holy and man is not, is sinful. The fury of fire, that's a terrifying thing. And then specifically regarding Jesus' defeat of Antichrist, which is tonight's focus, we see um, some, some more acts of what we would call wrath or violence, righteous violence. Second Thessalonians 2.8 says, Then the law, that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. He's going to slay him. And then Revelation 19.15, which we read uh, last, last week. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. All of that to say, our God is the perfect executor of wrath, judgment, and violence, which reflect his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. So with that as our, as our backdrop, um, what will the outcome be? Continuing on with uh, points four, five, and six tonight. Uh, certain victory, and then we're going to see complete victory and his crowning victory. We'll start off with his certain victory. So back to our text in Revelation chapter 19 beginning in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds with which fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God. So this first portion here, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. It kind of reminded me back to some, something we were talking about last week, that um, the actions of this event, of Jesus' second coming, of it leading up to Armageddon, is very in your face. It, compared to, uh, we went in great detail last week, so I won't spend time on it, but his, last, his first coming, which was of a humble nature, we saw, we saw, we paid attention to all the details that, um, that hinted at that last week. But here we have an angel standing in front of the sun. Is anybody not going to see this? This is in 
the face of the world, very visible and very powerful. As Jesus described, it would be when he talked when he talked about his second coming in Matthew twenty-four, verse thirty. He said, "And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory." So the, the angel standing before the sun, getting the attention of the whole world, is is just even uh, even more speaking to the fact that Jesus is coming with with great power and great glory. So he he said. This, so that's what the angel is doing, standing before the sun. What he says is, uh, he, he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. There's certain victory at hand. The angel, he's, this is pre-war, right? The, the, the war has not begun. And what does he do? He says, hey, birds, get ready. Get ready. You hungry? Have you ever uh, gone, you know, you, you know you're going to go to dinner for like a all-you-can-eat sushi or buffet or something? I'll go all day without eating because I want to get the, the most of it. These birds, if they're told early enough, they're going to be ready for a feast. He tells them to get ready. And, and to do what? Well, the next verse hints at it. It says, so that you may eat the flesh. And I'm going to cut it off in the middle of the sentence there to focus on the action of these birds. And we'll later on continue on the who. This confidence is only made possible because of who the rider of the white horse is. Jesus is revealed in the first uh, half of, of chapter 19. And, and because the angel sees who he is, and because of who he is, the angel says, get ready. This victory is, is certain. This is what we saw last week in verses 11 through 12. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So there are two things about these verses here that speak that Jesus is, is proclaiming himself that the battle is, that the victory is certain. The white horse, that's a, a, um, a victory horse that the generals use, right? We talked about that last week. That, that they would ride in on this white horse after they've, they have defeated the enemy. Jesus is doing this before the fight. And then these diadems, the many diadems on his head. We talked about it last week that this is his crown of victory. So when we see the picture of Jesus, we see that, that the victory is certain. And the angel now says, now proclaims it because of what he sees in Jesus. So the angel is able to invite the birds to feast on the enemy forces and make that invitation while they're still alive. No doubt that they heard it. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I hope he's wrong. <laughs> that guy standing in front of the sun, I don't know how he's doing that. It, they're in a lot of trouble. 
and it's because of the victorious Christ. And he's been victorious throughout redemptive history. Uh, He's been victorious at the cross. So what will the outcome be? It's a certain victory. Uh, how, How far back do you think the certainty goes? Well, we saw in 2 Thessalonians that Paul said that Jesus would do this. So at least that far back. Um, We know that Jesus spoke of this in the Gospels. So at least that far back. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. So at least that far back. Let's cut to the chase. Genesis 3.15. In the garden, Adam and Eve have sinned. They have been deceived by the the, the, the serpent. And God says in the aftermath, Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is speaking of a crushing. This crushing of Satan has always been the plan of God, and it has always been a certain victory. There was never a moment in time when this wasn't sure. And again, we see that at the cross when Jesus crushed, in in one sense of this fulfillment of this verse, Jesus crushes sin and takes the penalty on himself, crushing death, the penalty of, of sin. And now shown here in this fatal blow to Satan's armies. Romans 16.20, the, the, the end, the conclusion of Paul's book to the Romans, Paul reminds them of this certain victory, this crushing of Satan. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Oh, how powerful that we, all of us, We face today a conquered enemy because we serve a God who has already won. John 16, 11 says, And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This is the work of God against the enemies of God. And if you're more of a visual uh, learner like I am, I think of back to David, David and Goliath, the, this, this beast of a man is, is blaspheming God and, and making a mockery of his people. And this is just a shadow of the victory of Christ. But when David comes on scene and, and his, his finally convinces Saul to let him be the guy that that goes up to him. What does, he, what does he say to him? Let's take a look at that. 1 Samuel 17, 46. So these are the words of David as he's conversing with Goliath. He says, This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, that certain victory. And I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to who? to the birds of the sky 
and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What a beautiful picture of what Christ has done on the cross and what he's ultimately going to do to the enemies of God. There is certainty in the victory. Lord, help us live this way in regards to sin, in regards to obedience. I have to be the first to admit, I often do not live as though God has been victorious. I often sin like, live and, and please my, my flesh in a, in a way that's very different from that. We, we have to remember that, that God has already defeated our enemy. And like I said last week, again, this is not a victory speech on our own account. It's not, the message is not, go be like David. Go get the strength to be like David and slay your giant. Now that's a, a, a message that the world loves. That I could be like David and go slay my giant. But it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a, it's a lie that has been used by Satan in our, and it's flooding and destroying our country today. This idea that we can do it. That is not the message here. No, we lose. We fail on our own. But when we are in Christ, the victory is certain. So back to our text. Well, the next, the, next, uh, the next point. What will the outcome be? It's going to be a complete victory. So verse, verse 18 continues. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great Who is going to be included here? And this is what I mean by it's a complete victory. It reaches everybody who is not in Christ. There's no class. There's no status that shields or excuses one from the wrath of God. His victory is complete. There's no partiality in that. And you know what? I guess in the end, they get their way. There's no discrimination. It's very inclusive Sorry, I just had to say that. Might be the last time I'm up here. But it's very inclusive. If you are not in Christ, you are part of this group. No matter what stage you find yourselves in, in this list of people in verse 18. And Zephaniah is a great foreteller of this. Zephaniah chapter 1 sorry 14 through 18 it says near is the great day of the Lord near and coming very quickly listen the day of the Lord in it the warrior cries out bitterly a day of wrath is that day a day of trouble and distress a day of destruction and desolation a day of darkness and gloom 
a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Now, these last couple of verses or this last long verse is what I really want us to focus in on. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. On the day of the Lord's wrath and on all the earth and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. A complete end, indeed a terrifying one. What comes to mind for me is uh, the final plague on Egypt. You know, God has, has made it very clear to Pharaoh up to this point. Israel is mine. They are going to be delivered. And, and he has used the, these plagues where, where Pharaoh goes back and forth on wanting to let them go and not letting them go. And then you have the final plague. Um, and, and it's described in Exodus 11.5. It says, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There is no escape of the reach of God. And, And mankind has the arrogance to think we deserve something. We, we are entitled to something. I can stand against God. We see that in Pharaoh. We see that in, the, in Antichrist and all of his armies that are following him. But the only thing that we truly deserve from the greatest to the last, to the least, from Pharaoh to the slave girl, is death. And here we see the the ugly truth. God is no respecter of man. Pharaoh thought that he should be respected by God. Antichrist thinks he should be respected by God and should be able to defeat God. But the ugly truth is that God does not. His victory is complete in that it includes any that are not in Christ which are who these armies consist of. The, the chapters leading up to Revelation 19 uh, clearly indicate these, these people as those who have taken the mark of the beast, that have, ta- that have made their allegiance to the beast and to the dragon. <clears throat> so, so far in, in our text in, in Revelation, uh, we, have, we have only covered the announcement that the victory is about to take place. The announcement that it's going to be a victory for the birds to eat and who it includes. Now John is going to describe actually seeing these armies led by the kings and the beast. So verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So this is the pinnacle of that human arrogance that I was talking about. 
that not only do I deserve something, am I entitled to something, but I am going to take it. In essence, what Antichrist and his followers are saying is, I am God. I am going to do this in the face of God because I can, because I am God. And, and I, I can't help but think of my own heart when, when I go against the will of God and, and I make in my mind what I think should be the case or what I think should happen. I am just playing the role of God and saying, I know best. Now, what we see here is to a grander scale, um, but that's what's taking place. So notice the, the complete battlefield picture uh, that, that's described here. First, uh, Satan or the dragon. Now, he's not in our text before, before it's here in, in chapter 19, but in context, looking ahead at chapter 20, we, we know that Satan is, is there, that the dragon is there. And he's the one that's empowering Antichrist and, and his, his world system. And then next we have the beast, who, who is the Antichrist. Um, this is the, the worldwide political ruler of the time who, who is seeking to cement his sovereignty, cement his rule that he has grown to, to have in, in these last three and a half years of, of uh, the, the last half of the tribulation. And then we have the false prophet, again, not in verse 19, but we're going to see him in, in a verse or two. Um, the false prophet is the second beast of Revelation. So, so we have the dragon, who's Satan. We have Antichrist, who's the first beast. And then we have the false prophet, who is the second beast. And that the false prophet is more of a, the religious leader sidekick of Antichrist. Both empowered by Satan, both in defiance to God. And then we have the kings of the earth. So these, these kings, they're, they're the future ten kings, a ten-nation coalition um, that we saw back in Daniel. If we remember back in Daniel in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, of the statue of the gold head and all the way down to the ten toes, that's the future kingdom of Antichrist. And so those, those ten toes represent these ten kings who are here uh, fighting with Antichrist in the end. Um, and it's, it's also show, showed a little more clearly in uh, Revelation 17, verses 11 and 12. So verse 3 is the des- a description of one of, of a beast, of a vision that John, that John has. And then in verse 12 is the description of what these ten horns mean. So it says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. So there's the vision. The explanation in verse 12, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, because they're going to rule later with Antichrist, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. It's a short time. They're not going to last. So, so back to describing who, who is who on the battlefield. 
You have the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the kings, and then the armies, all those who have followed and taken the, the mark of the beast. And, and all of these are, are supporting Antichrist in his push to be the ruler of the world and to, to, put, to defeat Christ, this, this, this idea that they have to, that they can defeat Christ. Now, they, they assemble in a mighty show of force, probably the strongest show of force in the history of the world. When you see all of the world coming together to fight against one, but as we're about to see, it is all futile, and their defeat is a complete defeat. This is always how our enemy pre- presents himself, even in our, in our lives now. All bark, no bite. All show, no show up. Now, don't, don't underestimate our enemy, especially when we think of it on our own ability. We can't stand against this evil beast as wise as he has been able to become over the time. First Peter 5.8 tells us, Be of, good, of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But truly, this prowling lion has no bite because he is defeated. First John 4.4 tells us, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's not that we are strong enough to stand against our, against our enemy. It's that we have Christ. Even in Jude, when um, Michael is fighting over the body of, of Moses, he, he doesn't fight in his ability. He rebukes Satan in the name of God. He has to. So then moving on to verse 20. <clears throat> and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. You know, the, the lack of detail for such an important world-changing event can seem kind of surprising because guess what? This is it. Verse 20, he was seized. That's the fight. It could, it could seem a little surprising, but I think it speaks volumes because John has already told us everything that we need to know. He, he has told us that Jesus crushes his enemies. He says he does it by the word of his mouth. We have been shown from the first sight of Jesus that his victory is certain. I think the lack of more details speaks to the lack of any fight this evil force is able to muster. There's, there's nothing to talk about because they don't do anything. Jesus defeats them with his word of his mouth and it's over. The lack of detail speaks to the swiftness of his victory. And we are told his victory is complete. Continuing on in verse 20, these two, speaking of the beast and the false prophet, 
were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Here we have the first mention of the lake of fire in the Bible. The final hell, the place of eternal torment. And it says that they're, they're burned with brimstone. Brimstone is, is a, a, a picture of God's punishment and his judgment. The first move of our warrior king in this battle is to cut off the head of this force. Def- defeats the enemy, uh, the enemy's rulers, right away. The rest of the armies, everybody that's there has been putting their faith, their trust into this beast, into this false prophet, and like that, they're gone. So the victory is complete, leading us to the final, final point. It's his crowning victory. Yes, I know in chapter 20, um, actually, let's turn there. In chapter 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years following the defeat, uh, uh, the crushing defeat of, of his enemies at Armageddon. And then he's released to deceive one last time. Uh, and that's, that's what we see here when he's, when he's released and then finally destroyed. When the thousand years are, are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for, for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's the same story. It's a big show of force, but truly a big nothing. The devil's thrown into the lake of fire, reuniting with the beast and false prophet for an eternity of torment. And just as a side note, this flies in the face of, of those that, that hold to the idea of annihilation, uh, annihilationism, the idea that when you die, the lights go out. That's, not, that's a, a, a fairy tale that somebody made up to make, them feel, make themselves feel better about what happens to people. The beast and the false prophet, it says, are also. In verse 10, it says, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They're still there. And they will be tormented day and night forever. The outcome is the same. But the reason why I'm calling the victory here in chapter 19, his crowning victory, is because for all intents and purposes, this is the great attempt of Satan. This is the, the final uh, push of everything that Satan has to defeat Christ. And it's the greatest failure of any battle fought in the history of the world. Multitudes upon multitudes versus one. And they are utterly destroyed. Verse 21, we see, And the rest were killed with a sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. 
when we were looking at the, the completeness of, of his victory, um, we were talking about how those of all classes and statuses, everybody here is destroyed. All the rest. It doesn't matter where they stood if they, didn't, if they weren't in Christ. And here they're made ready for their final judgment by the power of his word. So this is the crowning victory of, of Jesus our King. And, and the result of this, of, of the killing of, of the rest, in the end of verse 21, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The invitation that the angel made in the beginning is completed here, is fulfilled. The invitation was made, Jesus crushes, and here are the birds feasting on the corpses of the enemies of God. Matthew 24, 27, and 28. Jesus speaking of his second coming. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will, be, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I, I, I remember early in my walk, I, I thought this verse 28 seemed so, so weird in Matthew. It, it just didn't fit. And as I studied it, you know, maturing in my faith, it's very clear. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the righteous, perfect violence and wrath of God poured out on the sinful enemies of God. So connecting back to our linking verse in Daniel, what will the outcome of these things be? We see that God returns. We see that he invites us with him. He deals violently with evil, and he reigns. And it's a victory that is certain, is complete, and is crowning. So, so what then are we to do? Three quick points of application. Number one, be ready. That's what Jesus tells us. Continuing, continuing on in Matthew 24, in, in his, his uh, address of his second coming, he says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this that if the head of that house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. We, we discussed how there's no class or status, no amount of money, no works that can shield or excuse anybody from this horrible wrath of God. How he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, Zephaniah told us, of all the inhabitants of the earth. There's one remedy, only one, be in Christ. And his righteousness 
his propitiation, absorbing the wrath of God on our, uh, on our end. And his atonement is the only answer. It's how we avoid being the devoured ones of Armageddon and become the feasting ones of the marriage supper of the Lamb at the beginning of chapter 19. This is where we must be. Be in Christ. We're either carried away to him or carried away by him to the lake of fire. Number two, be a light. Matthew five fourteen through 16, Jesus tells us, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. May we be the tools that God uses to bring people in, to bring them in and be ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb rather than the feast of the birds. And then lastly, be one. This is for us as the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, 23-25, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's do this together. That's what I'm saying here. Let's be the the body of Christ, and let us be found doing what our master has called us to do as his body. Stir one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Will you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, you alone are holy. You alone are righteous. And if if it weren't for your grace, we would be on the receiving end of this very wrath that we read about. We thank you, Lord, for, for opening our eyes. We thank you, God, for calling us to yourself. We ask that you would do, do this work in us, God. Help us to abide in you, abide in your word. Help us to allow the light that you have given us to shine for those around us so that they can know you as well. And God, help us to be one as the body of Christ, going about your business, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for being with us tonight. And I ask that you continue to bless the fellowship that, that we have here. In Jesus' name, amen.